Today's message is an evangelistic message. I'm just going to tell you that at the outset here. And it comes about because James was burdened for the assembly that he was writing to. And he states as much in verse 1 of chapter 4, What is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? And really what he was helping that assembly to understand is that there was a mixed multitude within the assembly. There were those that were truly saved, and yet there were those that were professing to be believers, but they were not true believers. And consequently, there were quarrels and conflicts among them. And he goes on to explain it. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about what those quarrels and conflicts looked like, that there was... uh, just this, this envy, this desire, this, this want of something just outside their reach. And that's the mark of an unsaved person. That's the mark of a person that is not satisfied by the indwelling Christ within his breast or her breast. And the truth of the matter is, is that there were people in the congregation that were like that. And because of those things that they were craving and weren't having met, that erupted into quarrels and conflicts. And in verse 4, he goes on and he says, listen, you're like a woman who has left her husband and committed adultery with someone other. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So he's calling them out, those who were professing. And he's saying, you are a friend of the world. These drives and lusts and envies that you have that are unsatisfied are towards the world. And therefore, you have made yourself an enemy of God, not a good position to be in. They were committing spiritual adultery They were chasing after the world instead of God. And worldliness, you remember we talked about, is not a list of externals that you refrain from doing and behaviors that you avoid. That's a very shallow view of worldliness. Worldliness is something to do with the heart that is dissatisfied and just craving more. And it can manifests itself in so many different ways. It's more than going to movies or wearing pants or having your mustache go below your, your lip or having your hair over your ear. I mean, I was part of a group for a long time that that was worldliness to them. How sad. How very, very sad. And how, how far did they miss the mark? Because you can do all those things. I could shave and not have my mustache go below my lip and make sure my hair is over my ear and everything and still be lusting after the world, right? My heart can still be bad. So James is calling him out. And then beginning in verse 5, James provides the only answer to the quarrels and conflicts. In verse 5, he says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And I told you at that time, we need to understand what that verse means because it's misleading, Um, especially in the New American Standard, which I use and I love. It's got a capital S there, which signifies we're talking about the Spirit of God. I don't believe it's the Spirit of God. The King James does a better uh, interpretation there. It says, Or do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit, small s, the human spirit, that dwells in us, lusteth to envy. Okay? So you've, you've got this human spirit inside that's craving all these other things. And that, that fits with the context. Because James was saying, because they were, they were uh, coming from those professed to be genuine believers, but who weren't, who were not possessors of salvation, James does some evangelism. And that's what we're going to get into today. He, he goes into um, a number of things, 10 elements I've listed, that 
define humility and effect the cure for sinners. Basically what I'm saying and what James is saying, check your life because these are the marks of a true believer. And of course, as I've said all the way through, James is talking to two different types of people, those who are saved and those who aren't. Can a saved person evidence some of these things and still be saved? Yes, because we have sin that dwells within us. Okay? We will not be free from that sin that remains within us until we have glorified bodies. So, we as believers, true, honest believers, can lapse into sins of worldliness. That's not the character of our lives, but we can lapse into them. And so it's a caution for those who are believers in the church as well. So whoever you be today, take heed, because it's for all of us to listen to. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these ten commands, because they're imperatives, Lord, that James lays out as a challenge to those within the assembly that were not believers, Father, let us examine our own hearts. Open our eyes, truly, that we might see you, Lord. And Father, for those of us that may be true believers but are caught up in our own cravings um, from that sin that remaineth within us, God, cleanse us from that. Help us to free ourselves from that by focusing on Christ who has satisfied our deepest longings. Father, some of us may have forgotten that. Lord, remind us through the sermon today, through your word today. And Father, we promise to give you all the glory, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as we think of these things, let me read verses 7 through 10 for you. Um, Verse 6, starting in verse 6, he says, But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, and the word of God says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What a beautiful passage of scripture. He uses ten imperatives, ten commands, that reflect what a truly humble heart looks like. It's not a list of things that that you have to do in order to become saved. It's a list that identifies the ingredients of a heart that has been humbled and is contrite. James is using these commands to call those who would read this letter away from their pursuit of the world and their endeavor to fulfill their lusts and away from their attempt to satisfy their envy for self-rule, autonomy, independence from God. This portion is like the epistle itself, and it includes admonitions to believers, as I mentioned, to do away with any remaining aspects in their former worldly living that might continue to mar their spiritual lives. You know, every time we as true believers sin, we're lying against the truth of what God declares us to be in Jesus Christ. We are no longer that person. You know, we're saying, just as I am. Okay, I, I don't know how many of you were ever in churches where that song was sung many times at the end for, you know, an altar call to come forward just as I am. The glorious thing about the gospel is he doesn't leave us there. Yes, it's true, you can come just as you are to Christ with your hands open to receive salvation, but he doesn't leave you there. And and Tracy, kudos to you for putting together a beautiful set of worship that basically tracked that. I don't know if you people listen to the way our worship is laid out, but I thank God for our worship team because we started with salvation and moved all the way through sanctification. And uh, just that's exactly what happens. We, we come to him just as we are. 
Without a plea, we have nothing in our hands to bring to him, but please save me, have mercy on me. And he saves us, but he doesn't leave us just as we are. Then we begin the process of sanctification, changing from glory to glory, transforming. I am not the same person I was even last month, let alone 40 plus years ago. Thank God for that. So that's the process that we're looking at. And the final words of the book clarify that James was doing evangelism in this book as well because we see in James 5, 19 and 20, he says this, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner, never used of a believer in the Bible, a sinner from the error of his ways, he will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the first command is submit, therefore, to God, and rightly so. We have to humble ourselves before God. If we're ever going to come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to first submit ourselves to his authority. And isn't that the truth? If you look back in Genesis chapter 3, what Adam and Eve did is they removed themselves under from under the authority of God, and became their own authority. They thought they were going for freedom. They thought that they would be just like God. No, no way. They became autonomous and separated from their life that was in Jesus Christ. They become spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says that every person, man, woman, and child, everyone that has been born into this world is born dead in trespasses and sins. So we start out at a deficit, and then there needs to be that critical moment when God opens our eyes, and he regenerates us, and we become saved, okay? Everybody has to have that moment. It doesn't have to be traumatic. It was in my life. Depends, I suppose, upon how well of a sinner you were, and how much of your sin you really realized you were sinning. Some people... They grow up in Christian homes and, and they kind of slowly come into the knowledge that they need a savior and, and that they're sinners because they d- disobey mom and dad and they're not nice to their sisters and they make that commitment to God, I, I want to be yours, I want you as my savior. And there are no tears, <laughs> there are no great remorse from a sinful life. And some of those folks have a hard time They struggle with their security, wondering, am I safe? Am I not? Especially when they hear testimonies of people that had terrible lives and they get saved. Oh, I don't have that kind of a testimony. No, but you may be saved just as much as the one that had a terrible life. But here, he says, submit. There is no greater indication of humility, humility, than submission of oneself to another. And in this case, the willful submission of the self to the rightful authority of the creator through an obedient response to the gospel of grace shows true humility. It's the opposite of willful autonomy and the intentional renunciation of our whole life back to God. He who has found his life, Jesus said, is going to lose it. You think you got life outside of Christ, You're going to lose it because when you die, you will remain separate from Christ. But he who has lost his life, he who has given up, taken his hands off of his life and submitted himself to the lordship, the sovereign reign of God in their their life, they gain life, eternal life. Now I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 4 because we have a marvelous illustration of this. Uh, There is no better. There is no better. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 28, we read about this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He happened to be the king of Babylon. And he was riding high. In verse 28, he says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, okay, after he had set up this big statue. Daniel had this vision of a statue, remember, with a gold head and all this stuff. And, and Nebuchadnezzar heard about it. And 
Daniel told him the truth. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the, you're the golden head. And so he builds this massive statue and has everybody in his kingdom bow down to it. Okay? So 12 months after, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. And I don't know if you ever heard of the gardens of Babylon, but he had gardens that they would, they would spray water. And so it would keep it cool in the summertime. Just a marvelous feats of architecture and everything. It was a wonderful city. And the king reflected and he said this, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Can you say pride? Arrogance? Taking everything, everything that was glorious to himself. Verse 31. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That means seven years. Seven years he'd grovel around eating grass like a cow. From here to below here, God brought him down. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Raving idiot ranging around eating grass. But at the end of that period, it was a predetermined period that the sovereign God put out for him. At the end of that period, now we go to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, finally. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Why? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time... My reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, not myself the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. (laughs) That preaches, right? I don't even have to say anything. That is exactly what James was telling them to do. Submit. Submit, people. And You see, it's so important because when we are standing autonomous, thinking that we can do something to gain his pleasure, we're just like Nebuchadnezzar. And some of us need to be brought low. We need to come to the end of ourselves. And so he takes everything away from us that we are trusting in. Maybe a marriage, maybe a family. Maybe a high-paying job, now you're broke and you don't have any money. Maybe a good name, and you've fallen into disrepute. All this is good, people. 
this is good. It was good for Nebuchadnezzar to range around and eat grass for seven years. Why? Because in the end, where he said, now, I know he's able to humble those who are proud. This is what James is getting at. Humility is the foundation. It is the open doorway, the empty hand, and the only way to express and and experience that greater grace that he gives to those that humble themselves. Humility opens the way. And understanding that God's justifying and sanctifying and glorifying grace of salvation is freely given to sinful people. And now you know that. No matter how sinful a person may be, no matter how much he may love and follow the world, no matter how enslaved to the lusts and passions for the things of the world he may be, God's grace has more than sufficient power to save, redeem, and purify you and sanctify you and change you and transform you. I can say that personally. (laughs) Can you? Can you? I submit it to God's authority in my life. All my life growing up, I was taught the, what a man was according to the dictates of a culture. And I thought I was pretty good. I was pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. Pretty near killed myself. And then I finally realized, oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong path. I'm in completely the wrong room. And I humbled myself before God and asked him to save me, and he did. And then I began to live a life learning about dependence, not independence, not autonomy, but trust in one greater than myself. Well, that's the first command that he gives, submit. Submit. To God, right? Secondly, resist. Resist. And he says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In obeying James' command to submit to God, they would in effect be obeying the second command to resist the devil. Because the devil has you under his control. You you understand that, right? In John, John's epistles, it says the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. Okay, you think that guy that cut you off is bad? I mean, he is literally under the control and reign of the devil who usurped control of the whole earth back when Adam and Eve fell. Now, it's going to return back, and that's in the rest of the chapters of Revelation that I didn't read to you. Jesus reclaims the earth as the sovereign that he is. But until then... Those who have not yet repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation literally are in the hand of the evil one. And so in submitting again to his sovereignty over us, you are taking a step of resisting the devil. And it says he'll flee from you. It shows a distinct contrast between two different spheres of life. We all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, according to Ephesians 2, 3. And in 1 Peter 5, it says, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 real quick. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, beginning in verse 11, what we're to do. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see, this comes after submission. You're in a right relationship with God. Now, resist the devil. And you can see the ongoing aspect of that into the Christian life. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. So resist the devil. Jesus showed us how we're to do this in his temptation from the devil in in Matthew chapter 4, 
1 through 11, he used the word of God to resist the devil's temptations. Thirdly, he tells us to draw near. I love this. Draw near to God and what? Okay, did anybody else, are you guys in your Bibles? You got your Bibles? Turn to James chapter (laughs) 4. Okay, it says, draw near to God and what? Okay, now maybe you got caught up in the world a bit. You've submitted, you've resisted, you're a believer. But somehow or other, you got caught up in the world again. And you're just listening to this going, am I really saved? Because... The more you sin, the more you're going to doubt your salvation. Okay, You just start doubting what God has done because of the way that you're living. Here's a key for you. This is a blessed promise to believers and unbelievers alike. If you draw near to God in sincerity, if you reach out to him, he will respond to you. He will. Okay, If you're a true believer that has gotten sidetracked off into the world, here's how you get back. You draw close to him because he promises he will draw near to you. That is glorious. That is wonderful. And maybe it's just that you've stopped having devotions. You've stopped reading the scripture. You're not praying like you used to pray. Well, he says very clearly, if you draw near to him, how would you do that? Well, you pick up your Bible and you start reading again. You pick up your Bible and you start reading again until you sense that he has responded to you in the word. Until a word or a phrase jumps off the page at you and you go, there you are. And he's been saying all along, there you are. Welcome back. Okay? Because he responds to sincere hearts that are willing to seek him. Now that goes for the unsaved person that finally realizes I'm in trouble with an all-powerful God and reaches out for him and draws near to him, God will draw. Remember Peter sinking in the water? Lord, save me. Immediately it says his hand went out to him. And that was a sincere prayer. Lord, save me. He was going down, right? That's what happens to both unbelievers when they realize they're in deep trouble They cry out to God, and God immediately responds to them, if it's sincere. And that's what happens to believers who finally realize, what have I been doing? And they call to God. He immediately responds to them. Draw near. It's it's reminiscent, you know, James is writing to a lot of Hebrews or uh, Jews that have come into the knowledge of the gospel. Some had believed, some had not. And they would remember the Old Testament priesthood because under the Old Covenant, it was only the priest that was able to draw near to God in ceremonial sense. Like in Exodus chapter 19, it says, and also let the priest who comes near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And there's promises that he'll do this. In Psalm 145, 18, it says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, now get this, all who call upon him in truth, in sincerity. He'll be near to you again. First Chronicles 28.9 says, if you seek him, he'll let you find him. And in Second Chronicles 15.2, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. So it's a matter of readjusting your focus, right? And this world sucks us dry, man. There are so many temptations, so many distractions. I wish, I wish the electronic or electromagnetic bomb would drop so that we'd lose all possibility of internet, television, all that stuff. Wouldn't that be glorious? All we'd have left is books to read. You know, and Bibles, and, and we'd talk to each other, right? I know I'm going to get flack for that one, but that's okay. Draw near, and he will draw near to you. That's a blessed promise. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And remember I said that no place in the scripture are believers called sinners. 
The fourth command looks back at the old covenant again and its origin with Jewish priesthood and the necessary preparations that they had to fulfill in order to bring the Lord an offering. They were to wash their hands. There was this this command for them to construct a large bronze laver, a large bronze bowl, if you will, but larger than a bowl that you would think of a bowl. And they placed it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and the priests had to wash their hands in the laver before they ever approached the altar to make sacrifice for sins. You've, you've all seen shows where Muslims, before they pray, they wash, right? They wash, they cleanse their hands. That's where they're getting that from. They had to do this or they would die. If they went and brought their offering to the altar without cleansing their hands first in the labor, they would die. They would be struck dead. All a picture of what we need in order to be close to God. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners are unregenerate. Psalm 51 13, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, David said after his confession, and sinners will be converted to thee, an unregenerate person. Isaiah 13 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from him. Sinners are not believers. We are sinners that are forgiven, okay? But we're never called sinners in the New Testament. The New Testament refers to sinners as unredeemed in Matthew 9, 13. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And over in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Mark 2, 17, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The contrast is clear. There are sinners who are unregenerate, unsaved, and there are righteous who are saved. Now, I know that some of you are believers, but you don't feel very righteous. Draw near to him. Get back on track, okay? You're never going to feel righteous, righteous, but you will be closer to God. As in the other commands, James is presenting the cure for quarrels and conflicts among them. They needed to repent and believe, for there is no other way a sinner can cleanse themselves. Fifthly, purify your hearts. Again, another Old Testament uh, illustration here. You double-minded. Who may stand in the Lord's holy place? He who has clean hands and a purified heart. Psalm 24. This is a grand promise of the new covenant, you know, that we get a new heart. Those of us that are willing to submit and resist the devil, cleanse our hands, humble ourselves before a sovereign God, we are promised a new heart. We see in Ezekiel 36, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that's tender, that he's able to work with. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, double-minded man, uh, remember John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he called this one Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> I love that. Double-minded really means to be double-souled. And you can't really be double-souled as a believer. Okay? It is an, an apt picture of one who says this and then believes that. James is hitting at the hypocrisy of these professors in that group. This is a hypocrite in the assembly who often confronted and is confronted in the book of James. And and the double-minded one needs a purified heart. Only God can purify a person's heart. You cannot purify. It's, again, dependence upon him to do that work within you. 
Number six, be miserable. The next three commands, be miserable, mourn, and weep, they all go together and they paint a picture of the person that has come to grips with their state of separation before a holy and a righteous God. I, I, I know of a person that professed to be a believer until her husband got saved, who she was always trying to drag to church and was always condemning, saying, you don't read the Bible, you need to trust Jesus, and yada, 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 right? He got saved, and he started seeing that she wasn't all that and more, and that she was a hypocrite. And things got really bad, and she fled him, left him, went out and started hooking up with a bunch of guys, seriously. And she was driving down the road and she was listening to a sermon on the radio. She was involved with another man. She hadn't divorced her husband. She just adultery. And she's driving down the road and she's driving right past Fourth Baptist, where Central Baptist Seminary is. And tears are streaming down her eyes. She is just broken because God just gave her a picture of who she was. Well, this fellow that she was with was beating her every day. And she just, she was broken. She had come to the end of herself. She whipped her car in a U-turn. She went to, went to the, a parking lot of 4th Baptist, went in. The receptionist was there, and she's just streaming tears. And she said, I need to talk to pastor. She didn't go to that church, you know, and the receptionist knew something was happening here. And she repented of her sin. She trusted Jesus Christ for real this time, Right? She went back to her husband. Her husband received her back. Received her back. I performed their recommitment vows. Okay? Every time in Bible study that the word of God was read, she just wept. That's what I'm talking about. You see, there are a lot of fakers out there. A lot of fakers. A lot of professors... I heard the term yesterday that it makes me laugh. My mom's name was Eva, and it's called Big Eva. My mom wasn't a big woman, but Eva is just kind of a name you don't hear much. Big Eva refers to evangelicalism, the, the, the evangelicalism that's everywhere. There's churches all over that claim to be Protestant evangelical churches, but they're, they don't have depth of truth in their churches, and their pulpits are basically how to live sermons that are 20 minutes long with great music maybe, you know, but they just, they don't do it. And so many people are caught up in what they think is salvation and it's not even close to this stuff. That's why I'm preaching this today. This is what marks a heart that's been broken before God. It's like the tax collector in Luke 18 he is unwilling to even lift his eyes toward heaven, but instead repeatedly beat his heart, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And of course, he's contrasted with the Pharisee that was a hypocrite, right? Saying, here I am, Lord, I'm bringing my offering to you. Just amazing. And that verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And get this, Jesus even brings out James' theme here. Maybe James was thinking of that when he wrote this. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Always remember, what matters is not so much what we think about God, people, but what does God think about you? What is God's perception of you? That's what's really important. And he's clear that he will oppose the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Mourn. To mourn is to have a deep grief and remorse Similar to what we experience when we lose a loved one, right? When we lose a loved one, our hearts are broken. And, and, and we, we have remorse because we didn't say everything we could have said when they were still alive. 
Many of you know what I'm talking about. He's bringing this over to the relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11 describes this in detail. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For behold, what earnestness this very thing has brought. This godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong has brought into you. This godly sorrow, this mourning for your sin. Man, I did not need to to recount my sin when I trusted Christ. When the gospel broke in on me, I knew I was just awful. I sinned against everything that I knew to be right. And he just, when I admitted that to him, he just saved me. (laughs) He saved me. Weep. Weeping and tears are the outward manifestation of two attitudes of heart that we just talked about. Right? It's the weeping of Peter when he realized that he had denied the one he loved. The scriptures tell us, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, that before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now this is not the weeping that some house church pastors over in China devised. That if you weep for seven days, you will be saved. And they taught it as a doctrine. It's not the tears of a person who's saddened to turn away from the world and the things that they used to love and and that's why they're crying because they can't do that stuff anymore. That'd be worldly sorrow and it only leads to death, separation. The weeping James refers to here is the outward expression of that deep remorse for their sin. Peter's sorrow was godly. Judas' sorrow was worldly because he went out and hung himself. There were tears over his guilt, tears over the fact that he knew what he had done, but he had not submitted himself to God because he went out and hung himself. These tears were more in keeping with David's tears, with which the scriptures say he watered his couch, or the tears of Mary Magdalene, the sinner, who knelt at the feet of Jesus and wept as she bathed his feet with her tears. Jesus says her sins were many, and they've been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Churches are filled with people that have been forgiven little, if at all. And their love for Christ is non-existent, people. There's a tear that spots the cheek and speaks more than the tongue can speak. It tells of many fiery darts within, of the foul, cruel, and deadly sin. In words without a name, it is a tear of shame. Our culture knows no shame anymore. I'm studying right now the fear of God. John Bunyan, I have the works of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, like the true Puritan that he was, wrote a small amount on the fear of God. I think it's by like one verse, you know, but it's pages and pages. And I'm just thinking, you know, what got me started on this was that, that kid that went in and killed all those people all those children. I was thinking, what on earth? There is no fear of God. There is no fear of God. There is no shame. We're celebrating Pride Month. How dare homosexuals take pride as their watchword, as their identifying? I mean, haven't they turned the truth of God's word completely upside down? God calls that an abomination, folks. An abomination means the same thing that you would do if you came across rotting flesh that that singed your nostrils and you hold yourself like this. That's what the word abomination means. It doesn't mean that you treat individuals like that, but the sin is an abomination. And it's a front to God. 
I mean, this is serious. You see, it's, it's, it's a whole lot more than, okay, raise your hand if you want to be saved. Oh, hallelujah, you're in the body now. This is the marks of salvation. He goes on, he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. Why does he say that? Well, this is not a condemnation of genuine joy or laughter, but a call to seriousness. This is a laughter and a joy that is contentless. It's frivolous. When I was reading the scripture today, over in Revelation chapter 1, if you want to turn there, just real quick and just take a look again. John got a glimpse of the Savior. And it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And he goes on and he describes him. And, and at the end, verse 17, it says, And when I saw him in all this radiant glory and everything, I said, hey, Jesus, homeboy, how you doing, man? That's blasphemous. That is blasphemous, and it's everywhere present. In churches, it's like the preacher that thought it was cool to swear in the pulpit. I just some days wish for Ananias and Sapphira days to come back. How great it'd be to see one of these guys just ranting their rant to just explode. That would wake some people up. The seriousness of what we're dealing with is eternal salvation of your soul. But so many are caught up in the world that they they can't even think of eternal things. Luke captures the idea of letting your laughter turn to joy when he recounts the beatitude, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And a few verses later, Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep and gnash your teeth. Finally, he gets to the end and he says, humble yourself and he will exalt you. That's back in James Chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's right where he started in verse 6. He said, but if he gives greater grace, therefore, God says he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He will exalt you, the humble. And the humbling is to take place in the presence of the Lord or before the Lord, so that the picture becomes one of lying face down, prostrate out in front of a guy who is a sovereign king. It's taken from Old Testament biblical times where there are kings. And he's pleading for mercy. And the monarch, looking down from the throne, reaches down and he lifts the petitioner's face from the dust. Much like Jesus did with John in the vision in Revelation 1. And a person stands then confident in the forgiveness of their offended Lord, and free from all consequence, having been lifted up by the very one that he had offended. The mercy had been granted. And so he could stand strong. Isn't this exactly what takes place in the story of the prodigal son? When he came to his senses, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, when, when his reason returned to him, Verse 18 of chapter 15 in Luke says, I'll get up and I'm going to go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And so he did that. And when his father saw him coming, in verse 22, he says, Bring out the best robe and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and let us eat. For this son of mine was dead. And he has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. (laughs) And they began to be merry. There's laughter. They began to be merry. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. The prayer of Job. 
in Job 5.11. So in conclusion, James provided for his readers the path that they needed to take to be delivered from the quarrels and conflicts that were among them because the trouble had its source in people who were professing to be believers but did not possess genuine salvation. James clearly called them to repent and believe for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, in an assembly that's filled with regenerate people, bonafide, born-again people, will be an assembly with far less problems than the quarrels and conflicts that James addressed in this passage. And although never sin-free, the honest humility displayed by genuine believers goes a long way in creating a harmonious environment. A beacon of hope has such an environment, I want to assure you, beloved. Beacon of hope has that kind of environment. And we have worked hard at cultivating that. Our leadership, you guys that are going to take that, that course on deacons, we're going to just teach you over and over again, there is nobody that is irreplaceable, starting with me all the way through. There is nobody that's irreplaceable. All of us are just servants. All of us are just saved sinners. All of us are right at the same level at the foot of the cross. We're gifted differently, and as we function in those gifts, we may get more face time. I get a lot of face time as opposed to the other elders, but at the foot of the cross, we're all even, right? We need to remember that. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when you're arguing and conflicting with each other, you don't have love for one another, and so you don't have that testimony anymore. Well, I wanted to bring this out to you today as an evangelistic sermon, and right now I'd like to give you a moment, just a moment, and then I'll close in prayer, and then we want to call, maybe during this time of prayer, Mike and Rebecca and uh, Brent and Mary Anderson forward. We're going to pray for them. So we'll have that time of prayer after my prayer. Let's bow our heart in prayer. We're going to give just a moment of quietness. Maybe you need to draw near to God for the very first time. And we want to give you that chance to do that right now. You don't have to have special words. All you have to be is sincere in your heart that you want to be saved by him, that you want the mercy of the forgiveness of your sins. And you can just say that to him in the quiet of your own heart right now. And if you're sincere, he will save you right here and right now today. And some of us who are believers, and we know we're believers, but we've strayed, we've gone off, we've left your side, we too need to draw near to you. We need to draw near to you by returning to those godly habits that we once practiced that were, have let go astray and not done anymore. Praying with you and and reading your word until you bless us with a word from your word. God, work in our hearts, we pray. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.